Welcome to Craft Lit, the podcast for crafters who like books. My name is Heather Wardover, and I'm podcasting here from the glorious Hudson River Valley in the little village of Croton-on-Hudson, New York. Sock blockers and extorting pirates. <clears throat> well, good morning. It is a little later than I had expected to get started on a a uh, rather dour-looking Thursday morning. It's overcast, although cool. It is humid, which I find loathsome. Um, but Boy, the weather look, looks very strange today. Uh, I don't know if we're going to get uh, thunderstorms or not. <clears throat> Maybe so. But today I wanted to share with you uh, a couple of fun websites. Um, one that has to do with knitting and two that have to do with nothing of the sort. The first site uh, I got from my Townsend Sock um, Knit Along group that I belong to, which I've mentioned before. Uh, Jeannie Townsend is is uh, the host and the... Um, sock designer extraordinaire she <coughs> excuse me she posted this uh this wonderful website it's www.feltupdesigns.com and i'll provide a link for this on the the web page but this felt up designs has done which by the way cracks me up as a name for uh, a yarn shop uh, they've done this really cool thing. They make normal size sock blockers regularly. You know, the the very pretty wooden laminate that has the, um, I mean, wood, wood sock blockers that are laminated with um, the, the clear varnish, but uh, that have the holes for drying the socks on them. But what they've done is they've made a keychain sock blocker. And then they sell it for a ridiculously low price of $2.50. And then they also sell you a pattern for knitting socks on size zero needles and then you can put little socks on your sock blocker and put that on your keychain and then wherever you go you can show off the little socks that you've knitted with the scrap yarn the scrap odds and ends of um of sock yarn that you have left over and i'll tell you these things are so darn cute Jeannie townsend has put some on her blog which i will also provide a link to um that are just so adorable. But I was I was thinking along the lines of um, one of the things that Stephanie Pearl McPhee did in her latest Yarn Harlot book, Knitting Rules. At one point in the book, she talks about how starting off knitting with a scarf is kind of like Chinese water torture, that you're you're just dragging yourself on and on through tedious knitting. Because really, until you're do unless you're doing a fairly heavily patterned scarf, scarf knitting is long and boring. It's like doing the back of a sweater with no pattern. You just kind of wish you had a sweater machine and could get past that part to the good stuff. <clears throat> well, it occurred to me in looking at this little tiny sock blocker sock and looking at the pattern as well, that had I tried knitting a sock this size when I first started knitting, I might have attacked socks much earlier. The first sock pattern I ever got a hold of was so badly written, and and I paid good money for it. 
I've gone back and looked at it again, and it's it is still badly written. And I had a lot of very experienced knitters at the time look at it, and they said it was badly written. So I feel kind of vindicated in that. Um, I've knitted a lot of socks successfully since then, and I've found only good patterns. So I I don't feel like I'm just complaining out of ignorance. Anyway, that goes on to a different podcast conversation from a couple of weeks ago. Um, the, the thing that I liked about this is you cast on 16 stitches. Anybody can knit 16 stitches in the round, and anybody can turn a heel on eight stitches without killing themselves. And I think doing something this small, even though it's on size zero double points, and that sounds intimidating, I still think if you can knit, you can knit something this small. But there's something about the the logic of turning the heel, the logic of how you construct the sock that would be very apparent in something this small that kind of, at least in the beginning for me, it was lost on me early on because I was so, I guess, overwhelmed by all the different parts of the sock and trying to figure out, well, which is this and what am I doing now? And I can't see the sock yet because it's it's a considerably bigger thing. You know, a 64-stitch sock is not a 16-stitch sock. So <clears throat> take a look. I think the poor people of Felt Up Designs actually got uh, overwhelmed with um, orders for their little sock blockers, so they, they may still be behind. Yesterday when I, I ordered some for myself, uh, they didn't write back and say that they were behind. So I don't know. Maybe they've caught up. Maybe not. But give them a chance, if you're going to order some for yourself, give them a chance to um, to catch up on their orders and uh, cut them some slack on that. Because I know at least earlier this week they had to um, they had to hurry up and make some more. And so I'm, I'm podcasting today on June, June 22nd. Oh my goodness, what day is it? Yes, Thursday, June 22nd, 2006. So if you are listening to this around this time, I know some of you guys have been... Uh, downloading after the fact um, please please go to the site and order but also understand that they may be backlogged the other thing that uh, I came across online this week that just cracked me up <clears throat> was a friend sent me a web link to a thing called extorter.com the most efficient way to blackmail the world you can send a demand and uh, and then wait for your money. And the, the hilarious part is the graphic on this front page is really, really cleanly done. It looks so professional. And it says, uh, the first step, upload scandalous photo or video. Two, set a price, then email an anonymous threat. Three, if they don't pay, your upload goes public. And there's an FAQ link on the very first page uh, where the demands and recently unpaid demands are all listed. It's just, it's just wonderful. At the bottom of the frequently asked questions, and mind you, I had to read through all of this, they've got three sections on the FAQ page. Blackmail procedure, advice for recipients of blackmail notes, and it starts with Question, what's going on? Answer, first of all, congratulations. You're being blackmailed using the most technologically advanced extortion service in the world. And I'm reading this thinking, oh my gosh, I can't believe how low we've sunk. Now we are able to extort easily on the internet. This is just horrible. 
And then the last section on the reality page, on the uh, FAQ page, is called reality. The first question is, is this site for real? Answer, no, it's a joke that's already been dragged out way too far for its own good. The second question, where are the pictures from? They were all released for any use at Stock Exchange. No one's really being blackmailed. And then who made this site? Tom Scott, you can email me or have a look at the other stuff I've made. Well, I got such a kick out of this extorter site, which again, I'm linking to on the show notes, that I went to his other stuff and I found Talk Like a Pirate Day. September 19th is official Talk Like a Pirate Day. This just cracked me up. I'm I'm putting a link to the site. I I hope we can all talk like a pirate on September 19th this year. I'll uh, I'll try to remember to repost this. But I just loved this this whole idea. He's got the history of the day, how to talk like a pirate, email the web captain. It's just lovely. And I thought, boy, it's nice that along with all of the very serious blogs and all of the podcasts and all of the Wikipedias and the, the online dictionaries and the EDU sites, that we also have guys out there who are just making stuff up. And the, the best part is the Talk Like a Pirate Day web link is www.yar.org. <laughs> oh, good times. All right, so enough fun. Uh, oh, uh, a little bit of happy news. I did finally finish the embroidery on the crazy quilt, and I am going to upload a picture of that to the show notes. I'm so blasted proud of this thing. It took it took a year and a half. I have a feeling my friend dropped dead when she opened the package because she couldn't possibly have been expecting it. She should have gotten it earlier this week, and... Um, I have yet to hear from her, so either she's horrified or she forgot who I was. I'm not sure which. But um, but I did finish it, and I am very happy with how it came out. And my sister and I have a new deal. Uh, we are going to Crazy Quilt together. I will do the machine stitching, and she will do the embroidery. And so we, um, we have high hopes for some plans that we've already made. Um, so last week, we got through a lot of the book. We got through... Um, quite a few chapters and I just wanted to kind of rehash a couple points make sure that uh, make sure that some stuff popped out there was an interesting inconsistency in Elizabeth um, when Charlotte decides to marry Collins for a position because she really has very few other options Elizabeth is very down on her and not at all pleased which shows that Elizabeth is really still quite a romantic she does expect that women should marry for love even in this kind of horrible economic climate where they they really are in many ways trapped but when Wickham decides that he needs to go after another young lady Elizabeth takes it all in stride she um she's fine with him kind of pursuing this mercenary course. Of course, one of the things that's important is uh, Mrs. Gardner recognizes that this is um, badly done on Wickham's part. And she's kind of the moral compass in this book, which also brings us to another interesting point. As much as I love Mr. Bennett, and he is very funny and he's wonderful comic relief, he has kind of abdicated his parental role in many ways. You see that Mrs. Bennett is useless for anything having to do with reality, 
Elizabeth is very, very, very smart, but she does kind of need some guidance here. And instead of Mr. Bennett saying, you know, Wickham's a bad, a bad choice, why don't you look elsewhere? He instead makes the crack about, well, go ahead and make yourself miserable. And then, uh, you know, I'll have one more to add to the, the family. It's just, it doesn't show how bad a parent he is until the gardeners show up. And it's, uh, it's interesting because certainly we're supposed to like Mr. Bennett, and he is definitely a sympathetic character, but he is not a fabulous parent. The gardeners are, in many ways, better parents to Jane and Elizabeth than, than their own parents are. And poor Jane. Oh, my goodness. Jane's getting the cold shoulder, for, shoulder from Miss Bingley. She's um, apparently been abandoned by Mr. Bingley. So now we've got Mr. Bingley going off and if mrs bing if miss bingley gets her way he will marry um darcy's younger sister we have charlotte who's married mr collins we now have wickham who's gone off and is pursuing uh, i think it's miss king another young woman and we're back kind of to square one with poor elizabeth and jane so a lot happened we still haven't had much darcy and uh i'm not at all happy about that Darcy will be back this week. We have more of the gardeners this week. We also finally get to meet Lady Catherine de Bourg. And we get to enjoy a lovely little tete-a-tete -tete between Lady Catherine and Elizabeth. Again, this is why we love Elizabeth. She is willing to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with anyone and um, proves over and over again just how strong of will and strong of mind she is. She's a lovely, lovely heroine for any young reader. And I always enjoy Elizabeth. So today we have chapters 27 through 30. I'm just amazed. I'm amazed both that we're up to chapter 30 and I'm also amazed that we have uh, 10 episodes under our belt. So without further ado, a little more Pride and Prejudice. Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen Chapter 27 With no greater events than these in the Longbourn family, and otherwise diversified by little beyond the walks to Meryton, sometimes dirty and sometimes cold, did January and February pass away. March was to take Elizabeth to Hunsford. She had not at first thought very seriously of going thither, but Charlotte, she soon found, was depending on the plan, and she gradually learned to consider it herself with greater pleasure as well as greater sincerity. Absence had increased her desire of seeing Charlotte again, and weakened her disgust of Mr. Collins. There was novelty in the scheme, and as, with such a mother and such uncompanionable sisters, home could not be faultless, a little change was not unwelcome for its own sake. The journey would moreover give her a peep at Jane, and, in short, as the time drew near, she would have been very sorry for any delay. Everything, however, went on smoothly, and was finally settled according to Charlotte's first sketch. She was to accompany Sir William and his second daughter, the improvement of spending a night in London was added in time, and the plan became perfect as plan could be. 
The only pain was in leaving her father, who would certainly miss her, and who, when it came to the point, so little liked her going that he told her to write to him, and almost promised to answer her letter. The farewell between herself and Mr. Wickham was perfectly friendly, on his side even more. His present pursuit could not make him forget that Elizabeth had been the first to excite and to deserve his attention, the first to listen and to pity, the first to be admired, and in his manner of bidding her adieu, wishing her every enjoyment, reminding her of what she was to expect in Lady Catherine de Bourgh, and trusting their opinion of her, their opinion of everybody, would always coincide. There was a solicitude, an interest which she felt must ever attach her to him with a most sincere regard, and she parted from him convinced that, whether married or single, he must always be her model of the amiable and pleasing. Her fellow travellers the next day were not of a kind to make her think him less agreeable. Sir William Lucas and his daughter Maria, a good-humoured girl, but as empty-headed as himself, had nothing to say that could be worth hearing, and were listened to with about as much delight as the rattle of the chaise. Elizabeth loved absurdities, but she had known Sir William's too long. He could tell her nothing new of the wonders of his presentation and knighthood, and his civilities were worn out, like his information. It was a journey of only twenty-four miles, and they began it so early as to be in Grace Church Street by noon. As they drove to Mr. Gardiner's door, Jane was at a drawing-room window watching their arrival. When they entered the passage, she was there to welcome them, and Elizabeth, looking earnestly in her face, was pleased to see it healthful and lovely as ever. On the stairs were a troop of little boys and girls, whose eagerness for their cousin's appearance would not allow them to wait in the drawing-room, and whose shyness, as they had not seen her for a twelve-month, prevented their coming lower. All was joy and kindness. The day passed most pleasantly away, the morning in bustle and shopping, and the evening at one of the theatres. Elizabeth then contrived to sit by her aunt. Their first object was her sister, and she was more grieved than astonished to hear, in reply to her minute inquiries, that though Jane always struggled to support her spirits, there were periods of dejection. It was reasonable, however, to hope that they would not continue long. Mrs. Gardiner gave her the particulars also of Miss Bingley's visit in Gracechurch Street, and repeated conversations occurring at different times between Jane and herself, which proved that the former had, from her heart, given up the acquaintance. Mrs. Gardiner then rallied her niece on Wickham's desertion, and complimented her on bearing it so well. "'But, my dear Elizabeth,' she added, "'what sort of girl is Miss King? I should be sorry to think our friend mercenary.' "'Pray, my dear aunt, what is the difference in matrimonial affairs between the mercenary and the prudent motive?' Where does discretion end and avarice begin? Last Christmas you were afraid of his marrying me, because it would be imprudent, and now, because he is trying to get a girl with only ten thousand pounds, 
you want to find out that he is mercenary. If you will only tell me what sort of girl Miss King is, I shall know what to think. She is a very good kind of girl, I believe. I know no harm of her. But he paid her not the smallest attention, till her grandfather's death made her mistress of this fortune. No, what should he? If it were not allowable for him to gain my affections, because I had no money, what occasion could there be for making love to a girl whom he did not care about, and who was equally poor? But there seems an indelicacy in directing his attentions towards her so soon after this event. A man in distressed circumstances has not time for all those elegant decorums which other people may observe. If she does not object to it, why should we? Her not objecting does not justify him. It only shows her being deficient in something herself, sense or feeling. Well, cried Elizabeth, have it as you choose. He shall be mercenary, and she shall be foolish. No, Lizzie, that is what I do not choose. I should be sorry, you know, to think ill of a young man who has lived so long in Derbyshire. Oh, if that is all, I have a very poor opinion of young men who live in Derbyshire, and their intimate friends who live in Hertfordshire are not much better. I am sick of them all. Thank heaven! I am going to-morrow where I shall find a man who has not one agreeable quality, who has neither manner nor sense to recommend him. Stupid men are the only ones worth knowing, after all. Take care, Lizzie. That speech savors strongly of disappointment. Before they were separated by the conclusion of the play, she had the unexpected happiness of an invitation to accompany her uncle and aunt in a tour of pleasure which they proposed taking in the summer. "'We have not determined how far it shall carry us,' said Mrs. Gardiner, "'but perhaps to the lakes.' No scheme could have been more agreeable to Elizabeth, and her acceptance of the invitation was most ready and grateful." "'Oh, my dear, dear aunt!' she rapturously cried. "'What delight! What felicity! "'You give me fresh life and vigour. "'Adieu to disappointment and spleen. "'What are young men to rocks and mountains? "'Oh, what hours of transport we shall spend! "'And when we do return, it shall not be like other travellers, "'without being able to give one accurate idea of anything. "'We will know where we have gone.' We will recollect what we have seen. Lakes, mountains, and rivers shall not be jumbled together in our imaginations, nor when we attempt to describe any particular scene will we begin quarreling about its relative situation. Let our first effusions be less insupportable than those of the generality of travelers. End of chapter 27 Chapter 28 Every object in the next day's journey was new and interesting to Elizabeth, and her spirits were in a state of enjoyment, for she had seen her sister looking so well as to banish all fear for her health, and the prospect of her northern tour was a constant source of delight. When they left the high road for the lane to Huntsford, Every eye was in search of the parsonage, and every turning expected to bring it in view. The palings of Rosings Park was their boundary on one side. Elizabeth smiled at the recollection of all that she had heard of its inhabitants. 
At length the parsonage was discernible, the garden sloping to the road, the house standing in it, the green pales and the laurel hedge. Everything declared they were arriving. Mr. Collins and Charlotte appeared at the door, and the carriage stopped at the small gate which led by a short gravel walk to the house, amidst the nods and smiles of the whole party. In a moment they were all out of the chaise, rejoicing at the sight of each other. Mrs. Collins welcomed her friends with the liveliest pleasure, and Elizabeth was more and more satisfied with coming when she found herself so affectionately received. She saw instantly that her cousin's manners were not altered by his marriage. His formal civility was just what it had been, and he detained her some minutes at the gate to hear and satisfy his inquiries after all her family. They were then, with no other delay than his pointing out the neatness of the entrance, taken into the house, and as soon as they were in the parlor, he welcomed them a second time, with ostentatious formality, to his humble abode, and punctually repeated all his wife's offers of refreshment. Elizabeth was prepared to see him in his glory, and she could not help in fancying that in displaying the good proportion of the room, its aspect and its furniture, he addressed himself particularly to her, as if wishing to make her feel what she had lost in refusing him. But though everything seemed neat and comfortable, she was not able to gratify him by any sigh of repentance, and rather looked with wonder at her friend that she could have so cheerful an air with such a companion. When Mr. Collins said anything of which his wife might reasonably be ashamed, which certainly was not unseldom, she involuntarily turned her eye on Charlotte. Once or twice she could discern a faint blush, but in general Charlotte wisely did not hear. After sitting long enough to admire every article of furniture in the room, from the sideboard to the fender, to give an account of their journey, and of all that had happened in London, Mr. Collins invited them to take a stroll in the garden, which was large and well laid out, and to the cultivation of which he attended himself. To work in this garden was one of his most respectable pleasures, and Elizabeth admired the command of countenance with which Charlotte talked of the healthfulness of the exercise, and owned she encouraged it as much as possible. Here, leading the way through every walk and crosswalk, and scarcely allowing them an interval to utter the praises he asked for, every view was pointed out with a minuteness which left beauty entirely behind. He could number the fields in every direction, and could tell how many trees were in the most distant clump. But of all the views which his garden, or which the country, or kingdom could boast, none were be to compared with the prospect of rosings, afforded by an opening in the trees that bordered the park nearly opposite the front of his house. It was a handsome modern building, well situated on rising ground. From his garden Mr. Collins would have led them round his two meadows, but the ladies, not having shoes to encounter the remains of a white frost, turned back, and while Sir William accompanied him, Charlotte took her sister and friend over the house, extremely well pleased, probably, to have the opportunity of showing it without her husband's help. It was rather small, but well built and convenient, 
and everything was fitted up and arranged with a neatness and consistency of which Elizabeth gave Charlotte all the credit. When Mr. Collins could be forgotten, there was really an air of great comfort throughout, and by Charlotte's evident enjoyment of it, Elizabeth supposed he must be often forgotten. She had already learnt that Lady Catherine was still in the country. It was spoken of again while they were at dinner, when Mr. Collins, joining in, observed, "'Yes, Miss Elizabeth, you will have the honour of seeing Lady Catherine de Bourg on the ensuing Sunday at church, and I need not say you will be delighted with her. She is all affability and condescension.' and I doubt not but you will be honoured with some portion of her notice when service is over. I have scarcely any hesitation in saying she will include you and my sister Maria in every invitation with which she honours us during your stay here. Her behaviour to my dear Charlotte is charming. We dine at Rosings twice every week, and are never allowed to walk home. Her ladyship's carriage is regularly ordered for us. I should say one of her ladyship's carriages, for she has several. Lady Catherine is a very respectable, sensible woman indeed, said Charlotte, and a most attentive neighbor. Very true, my dear, that is exactly what I say. She is the sort of woman whom one cannot regard with too much deference. The evening was spent chiefly in talking over Hertfordshire news and telling again what had already been written, in the solitude of her chamber, had to meditate upon Charlotte's degree of contentment, to understand her address in guiding, and composure in bearing with her husband, and to acknowledge that it was all done very well. She had also to anticipate how her visit would pass, the quiet tenor of their usual employments, the vexatious interruptions of Mr. Collins, and the gaieties of their intercourse with Rosings. A lively imagination soon settled it all. About the middle of the next day, as she was in her room getting ready for a walk, a sudden noise below seemed to speak the whole house in confusion, and, after listening a moment, she heard somebody running upstairs in a violent hurry, and calling loudly after her. She opened the door and met Maria, in the landing-place, who, breathless with agitation, cried out, "'Oh, my dear Eliza, pray make haste and come into the dining-room, for there is such a sight to be seen. I will not tell you what it is. Make haste, and come down this moment.' Elizabeth asked questions in vain. Maria would tell her nothing more, and down they ran into the dining-room, which fronted the lane, in quest of this wonder." It was two ladies, stopped in a low phaeton, at the garden gate. "'And this is all,' cried Elizabeth. "'I expected at least that the pigs were gotten to the garden, "'and here is nothing but Lady Catherine and her daughter.' "'My dear,' said Maria, quite shocked at the mistake, "'it is not Lady Catherine. "'The old lady is Mrs. Jenkinson, who lives with them. "'The other is Miss de Bourg. "'Only look at her. "'She is quite a little creature.' Who would have thought that she could be so thin and small? She is abominably rude to keep Charlotte out of doors in all this wind. Why does she not come in? Oh, Charlotte says she hardly ever does. It is the greatest of favors when Miss de Bourg comes in. I like her appearance, said Elizabeth. 
struck with other ideas. She looks sickly and cross. Yes, she will do for him very well. She will make him a very proper wife. Mr. Collins and Charlotte were both standing at the gate in conversation with the ladies, and Sir William, to Elizabeth's high diversion, was stationed in the doorway in earnest contemplation of the greatness before him, and constantly bowing whenever Miss de Bourg looked that way. At length there was nothing more to be said. The ladies drove on, and the others returned into the house. Mr. Collins no sooner saw the two girls than he began to congratulate them on their good fortune, which Charlotte explained by letting them know that the whole party was asked to dine at Rosings the next day. End of chapter 28 Chapter 29 Mr. Collins's triumph, in consequence of this invitation, was complete. The power of displaying the grandeur of his patroness to his wondering visitors, and of letting them see her civility towards himself and his wife, was exactly what he had wished for, and that an opportunity of doing it should be given so soon was such an instance of Lady Catherine's condescension as he knew not how to admire enough. "'I confess,' said he, "'that I should not have been at all surprised "'by her ladyship's asking us on Sunday "'to drink tea and spend the evening at Rosings. "'I rather expected, from my knowledge of her affability, "'that it would happen. "'But who could have foreseen such an attention as this? "'Who could have imagined that we should receive an invitation to dine there?' an invitation, moreover, including the whole party, so immediately after your arrival. I am the less surprised at what has happened, replied Sir William, from that knowledge of what the matters of the great really are, which my situation in life has allowed me to acquire. About the court, such instances of elegant breeding are not uncommon. Scarcely anything was talked of the whole day or next morning, but their visit to Rosings. Mr. Collins was carefully instructing them in what they were to expect, that the sight of such rooms, so many servants, and so splendid a dinner might not wholly overpower them. When the ladies were separating for the toilette, he said to Elizabeth, "'Do not make yourself uneasy, my dear cousin, about your apparel. Lady Catherine is far from requiring that elegance of dress in us,' which becomes herself and her daughter. I would advise you merely to put on whatever of your clothes is superior to the rest. There is no occasion for anything more. Lady Catherine will not think the worse of you for being simply dressed. She likes to have the distinction of rank preserved. While they were dressing, he came two or three times to their different doors to recommend their being quick, as Lady Catherine very much objected to be kept waiting for her dinner. Such formidable accounts of her ladyship and her manner of living quite frightened Maria Lucas, who had been little used to company, and she looked forward to her introduction at Rosings with as much apprehension as her father had done to his presentation at St. James's. As the weather was fine, they had a pleasant walk of about half a mile across the park, Every park has its beauty and its prospects, and Elizabeth saw much to be pleased with, though she could not be in such raptures as Mr. Collins expected the scene to inspire, 
and was but slightly affected by his enumeration of the windows in front of the house, and his relation of what the glazing altogether had originally cost Sir Louis de Bourg. When they ascended the steps to the hall, Maria's alarm was every moment increasing, and even Sir William did not look perfectly calm. Elizabeth's courage did not fail her. She had heard nothing of Lady Catherine that spoke her awful from any extraordinary talents or miraculous virtue, and the mere stateliness of money or rank she thought she could witness without trepidation. From the entrance hall, of which Mr. Collins pointed out with a rapturous air, the fine proportion and the finished ornaments, they followed the servants through an antechamber to the room where Lady Catherine, her daughter, and Mrs. Jenkinson were sitting. Her ladyship, with great condescension, arose to receive them, and as Mrs. Collins had settled it with her husband that the office of introduction should be hers, it was performed in a proper manner, without any of those apologies and thanks which he would have thought necessary. In spite of having been at St. James's, Sir William was so completely awed by the grandeur surrounding him that he had but just courage enough to make a very low bow and take his seat without saying a word. And his daughter, frightened almost out of her senses, sat on the edge of her chair, not knowing which way to look. Elizabeth found herself quite equal to the scene, and could observe the three ladies before her composedly. Lady Catherine was a tall, large woman, with strongly marked features, which might once have been handsome. Her air was not conciliating, nor was her manner of receiving them such as to make her visitors forget their inferior rank. She was not rendered formidable by silence, but whatever she said was spoken in so authoritative a tone as marked her self-importance and brought Mr. Wickham immediately to Elizabeth's mind and from the observation of the day altogether she believed Lady Catherine to be exactly what he represented. When, after examining the mother, in whose countenance and deportment she soon found some resemblance of Mr. Darcy, she turned her eyes on the daughter. She could almost have joined in Maria's astonishment at her being so thin and so small. There was neither in figure nor face any likeness between the ladies. Miss de Bourg was pale and sickly. Her features, though not plain, were insignificant, and she spoke very little, except in a low voice to Mrs. Jenkinson, in whose appearance there was nothing remarkable, and who was entirely engaged in listening to what she said, and placing a screen in the proper direction before her eyes. After sitting a few minutes, they were all sent to one of the windows to admire the view. Mr. Collins attending them to point out its beauties, and Lady Catherine kindly informing them that it was much better worth looking at in the summer. The dinner was exceedingly handsome, and there were all the servants and all the articles of plate which Mr. Collins had promised, and as he had likewise foretold, he took his seat at the bottom of the table, by her ladyship's desire, and looked as if he felt that life could furnish nothing greater. He carved and ate and praised with delighted alacrity, and every dish was commended, first by him and then by Sir William, who is now enough recovered to echo whatever his son-in-law said, 
in a manner which Elizabeth wondered Lady Catherine could bear. But Lady Catherine seemed gratified by their excessive admiration, and gave most gracious smiles, especially when any dish on the table proved a novelty to them. The party did not supply much conversation. Elizabeth was ready to speak whenever there was an opening, but she was seated between Charlotte and Miss de Bourg, the former of whom was engaged in listening to Lady Catherine, and the latter said not a word to her all dinner-time. Mrs. Jenkinson was chiefly employed in watching how little Miss de Bourg ate, pressing her to try some other dish, and fearing she was indisposed. Maria thought speaking out of the question, and the gentlemen did nothing but eat and admire. When the ladies returned to the drawing-room, there was little to be done but to hear Lady Catherine talk, which she did without any intermission, till coffee came in, delivering her opinion on every subject in so decisive a manner as proved that she was not used to have her judgment controverted. She inquired into Charlotte's domestic concerns familiarly and minutely, gave her a great deal of advice as to the management of them all, told her how everything ought to be regulated in so small a family as hers, and instructed her as to the care of her cows and her poultry. Elizabeth found that nothing was beneath this great lady's attention, which could furnish her with an occasion of dictating to others. In the intervals of her discourse with Mrs. Collins, she addressed a variety of questions to Maria and Elizabeth, but especially to the latter, of whose connections she knew the least, and who she observed to Mrs. Collins, was a very genteel, pretty kind of girl. She asked her at different times how many sisters she had, whether they were older or younger than herself, whether any of them were likely to be married, whether they were handsome, where they had been educated, what carriage her father kept, and what had been her mother's maiden name. Elizabeth felt all the impertinence of her questions, but answered them very composedly. Lady Catherine then observed, "'Your father's estate is entailed on Mr. Collins, I think. For your sake,' turning to Charlotte, "'I am glad of it. But otherwise I see no occasion for entailing estates from the female line.' It was not thought necessary in Sir Louis de Bourg's family. Do you play and sing, Miss Bennet? A little. Oh, then, some time or other, we shall be happy to hear you. Our instrument is a capital one, probably superior to— You shall try it some day. Do your sisters play and sing? One of them does. Why did not you all learn? You ought all to have learned. The Miss Webbs all play, and their father has not so good an income as yours. Do you draw? No, not at all. What? None of you? Not one. That is very strange, but I suppose you had no opportunity. Your mother should have taken you to town every spring for the benefit of masters. My mother would have had no objection, but my father hates London. Has your governess left you? We never had any governess. No governess? How was that possible? Five daughters brought up at home without a governess? I never heard of such a thing. Your mother must have been quite a slave to your education. 
Elizabeth could hardly help smiling as she assured her that had not been the case. Then who taught you? Who attended to you? Without a governess, you must have been neglected. Compared with some families, I believe we were, but such of us as wished to learn never wanted the means. We were always encouraged to read and had all the masters that were necessary. Those who chose to be idle certainly might. Aye, no doubt, but that is what a governess will prevent, and if I had known your mother, I should have advised her most strenuously to engage one. I always say that nothing is to be done in education without steady and regular instruction, and nobody but a governess can give it. It is wonderful how many families I have been the means of supplying in that way. I am always glad to get a young person well placed out. Four nieces of Mrs. Jenkinson are most delightfully situated through my means, and it was but the other day that I recommended another young person, who was merely accidentally mentioned to me, and the family was quite delighted with her. Mrs. Collins, did I tell you of Lady Metcalfe's calling yesterday to thank me? She finds Miss Pope a treasure. Lady Catherine, she said, you have given me a treasure. Are any of your younger sisters out, Miss Bennet? Yes, ma'am, all. All? What? All five out at once? Very odd. And you only the second. The younger one's out before the elder ones are married? Your younger sisters must be very young. Yes, my youngest is not sixteen. Perhaps she is full young to be much in company. But really, ma'am, I think it would be very hard upon younger sisters that they should not have their share of society and amusement because the elder may not have the means or inclination to marry early. The last-born has as good a right to the pleasures of youth as the first, and to be kept back on such a motive, I think it would not be very likely to promote sisterly affection or delicacy of mind. Upon my word, said her ladyship, you give your opinion very decidedly for so young a person. Pray, what is your age? With three younger sisters grown up, replied Elizabeth, smiling, your ladyship can hardly expect me to own it. Lady Catherine seemed quite astonished at not receiving a direct answer, and Elizabeth suspected herself to be the first creature who had ever dared to trifle with so much dignified impertinence. You cannot be more than twenty, I am sure. Therefore you need not conceal your age. I am not one and twenty. When the gentlemen had joined them, and tea was over, the card-tables were placed. Lady Catherine, Sir William, and Mr. and Mrs. Collins sat down to quadrille, and as Miss de Bourg chose to play at casino, the two girls had the honor of assisting Mrs. Jenkins to make up her party. Their table was superlatively stupid. Scarcely a syllable was uttered that did not relate to the game, except when Mrs. Jenkinson expressed her fears of Miss de Bourg's being too hot, or too cold, or having too much, or too little light. A great deal more passed at the other table. Lady Catherine was generally speaking, stating the mistakes of the three others, or relating some anecdote of herself. Mr. Collins was employed in agreeing to everything her ladyship said, thanking her for every fish he won, 
and apologizing if he thought he won too many. Sir William did not say much. He was storing his memory with anecdotes and noble names. When Lady Catherine and her daughter had played as long as they chose, the tables were broken up. The carriage was offered to Mrs. Collins, gratefully accepted and immediately ordered. The party then gathered round the fire to hear Lady Catherine determine what weather they were to have on the morrow. From these instructions they were summoned by the arrival of the coach, and with many speeches of thankfulness on Mr. Collins's side, and as many bows on Sir William's, they departed. As soon as they had driven from the door, Elizabeth was called on by her cousin to give her opinion of all that she had seen at Rosings, which, for Charlotte's sake, she made more favorable than it really was. But her commendation, though costing her some trouble, could by no means satisfy Mr. Collins, and he was very soon obliged to take her ladyship's praise into his own hands. End of chapter 29 Chapter 30 Sir William stayed only a week at Hunsford, but his visit was long enough to convince him of his daughter's being most comfortably settled, and of her possessing such a husband and such a neighbor as were not often met with. While Sir William's was with them, Mr. Collins devoted his morning to driving him out in his gig, and showing him the country, but when he went away, the whole family returned to their usual employments, and Elizabeth was thankful to find that they did not see more of her cousin by the alteration, for the chief of the time between breakfast and dinner was now passed by him either at work in the garden, or in reading and writing, and looking out of the window in his own book-room, which fronted the road. The room in which the ladies sat was backwards. Elizabeth had at first rather wondered that Charlotte should not prefer the dining-parlor for common use. It was a better-sized room, and had a more pleasant aspect, but she soon saw that her friend had an excellent reason for what she did, for Mr. Collins would undoubtedly have been much less in his own apartment, had they sat in one equally lively, and she gave Charlotte credit for the arrangement. From the drawing-room they could distinguish nothing in the lane, and were indebted to Mr. Collins for the knowledge of what carriages went along, and how often especially Miss de Bourg drove by in her phaeton, which he never failed coming to inform them of, though it happened almost every day. She not unfrequently stopped at the parsonage, and had a few minutes' conversation with Charlotte, but was scarcely ever prevailed upon to get out. Very few days passed in which Mr. Collins did not walk to Rosings, and not many in which his wife did not think it necessary to go likewise, until Elizabeth recollected that there might be other family livings to be disposed of, she could not understand the sacrifice of so many hours. Now and then they were honored with a call from her ladyship, and nothing escaped her observation that was passing in the room during these visits. She examined into their employments, looked at their work, and advised them to do it differently, found fault with the arrangement of the furniture, or detected the housemaid in negligence, and if she accepted any refreshment, seemed to do it only for the sake of finding out that Mrs. Collins's joints of meat were too large for her family. Elizabeth soon perceived 
that though this great lady was not in commission of the peace of the county, she was a most active magistrate in her own parish, the minutest concerns of which were carried to her by Mr. Collins, and whenever any of the cottages were disposed to be quarrelsome, discontented, or too poor, she sallied forth into the village to settle their differences, silence their complaints, and scold them into harmony and plenty. The entertainment of dining at Rosings was repeated about twice a week, and, allowing for the loss of Sir William, and there being only one card-table in the evening, every such entertainment was the counterpart of the first. Their other engagements were few, as the style of living in the neighborhood in general was beyond Mr. Collins's reach. This, however, was no evil to Elizabeth, and upon the whole she spent her time comfortably enough. There were half-hours of pleasant conversation with Charlotte, and the weather was so fine for the time of year that she had often great enjoyment out of doors. Her favorite walk, and where she frequently went while the others were calling on Lady Catherine, was along the open grove which edged that side of the park, where there was a nice sheltered path, which no one seemed to value but herself, and where she felt beyond the reach of Lady Catherine's curiosity. In this quiet way the first fortnight of her visit soon passed away. Easter was approaching, and the week preceding it was to bring an addition to the family at Rosings, which in so small a circle must be important. Elizabeth had heard soon after her arrival that Mr. Darcy was expected there in the course of a few weeks, and though there were not many of her acquaintances whom she did not prefer, his coming would furnish one comparatively new to look at in their Rosings parties, and she might be amused in seeing how hopeless Miss Bingley's designs on him were, by his behavior to his cousin, for whom he was evidently destined by Lady Catherine, who talked of his coming with the greatest satisfaction, spoke of him in terms of the highest admiration, and seemed almost angry to find that he had already been frequently seen by Miss Lucas and herself. His arrival was soon known at the parsonage, for Mr. Collins was walking the whole morning within view of the lodges opening into Hunsford Lane, in order to have the earliest assurance of it, and, after making his bow as the carriage turned into the park, hurried home with the great intelligence. On the following morning he hastened to Rosings to pay his respects. There were two nephews of Lady Catherine to require them, for Mr. Darcy had brought with him a Colonel Fitzwilliam, the younger son of his uncle Lord Fitzwilliam, and, to the great surprise of all the party, when Mr. Collins returned, the gentleman accompanied him. Charlotte had seen them from her husband's room, crossing the road, and immediately running into the other, told the girls what an honor they might expect, adding, I may thank you, Eliza, for this piece of civility. Mr. Darcy would never have come so soon to wait upon me. Elizabeth had scarcely time to disclaim all right to the compliment, before their approach was announced by the door-bell and shortly afterwards the three gentlemen entered the room. Colonel Fitzwilliam, who led the way, was about thirty, not handsome, but in person and address most truly the gentleman. Mr. Darcy looked just as he had been used to look in Hertfordshire, 
paid his compliments with his usual reserve to Mrs. Collins, and, whatever might be his feelings towards her friend, met her with every appearance of composure. Elizabeth merely curtsied to him, without saying a word. Colonel Fitzwilliam entered into conversation directly with the readiness and ease of a well-bred man, and talked very pleasantly, but his cousin, after having addressed a slight observation on the house and garden to Mrs. Collins, sat for some time without speaking to anybody. At length, however, his civility was so far awakened as to inquire of Elizabeth after the health of her family. She answered him in the usual way, and after a moment's pause added, "'My eldest sister has been in town these three months. Have you never happened to see her?' She was perfectly sensible that he never had, but she wished to see whether he would betray any consciousness of what had passed between the Bingleys and Jane, and she thought he looked a little confused as he answered that he had never been so fortunate as to meet Miss Bennet. The subject was pursued no farther, and the gentleman soon afterwards went away. End of chapter 30 I hope you enjoyed chapters 27 through 30, and I hope you come back next week for 31 and 32. As always, I'd like to thank Annie Coleman for her reading of the book, and thank you to Josh Christian, who did Chasing Hero. You can find a blog for this podcast at craftlit.blogspot.com or craftlit.libsyn.com. That's craftlit, C-R-A-F-T-L-I-T, all one word, and libsyn, L-I-B-S-Y-N. And of course, you can subscribe at iTunes. And do remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on. <laughs>